Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, where we feature the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. Can money buy happiness? Is a rich country necessarily a happy nation? Are economic indicators good measures of the citizen's happiness or subjective well-being? What is the significance of these measurements for the public sector? A Lee Kuan Yew Fellow, Professor of Psychology and Director of the Behavioural Sciences Institute at the Singapore Management University, Professor David Chan has received numerous international awards for his research, including those that relate to the measurement of attitudes and perceptions. He is also a consultant to many organisations on employee well-being and has been involved in national surveys on social attitudes. He has also served on an international committee on the measurement of national well-being across countries, supported by several international associations of psychology. In this podcast, Professor David Chan shares his views about subjective well-being and its relevance for public policy, both globally and locally in Singapore. Professor Chan, what is subjective well-being? The concept of subjective well-being refers to people's evaluations and experiences of their lives in terms of how they think and feel. So it involves both a cognitive component and an emotional component. The cognitive component refers to life satisfaction, which is our evaluation of the extent to which our needs, wants or expectations are met. And these evaluations may be about general life satisfaction or specific life domains such as family and work. The emotional component refers to life happiness, which is about the presence of positive emotions such as joy and feelings of accomplishment and absence of negative emotions such as anger and feelings of neglect. So well-being in terms of life satisfaction and life happiness is inherently subjective because it refers to how the individual thinks and feels about his or her quality of life. And we can examine subjective well-being at levels beyond the individual, such as the team, organisation or even national levels. Why has there been an increasing global interest in measuring a nation's subjective well-being, in addition to the standard economic measures of growth and progress? The simple answer is that many nations are recognising that economic measures alone, such as GDP per capita, do not capture many of the important things in life. The problem is not that economic indicators are irrelevant. In fact, they are correlated with well-being. The problem is that economic indicators by themselves are inadequate as measures of well-being. First, they are only partially valid in that they at best capture some relevant aspects instead of the core of well-being. Second, they are partially invalid in that they also capture aspects of a nation that may have no relationship with citizen well-being. But one important development was a consistent pattern of finding from many studies on national well-being. These studies showed that although economic growth does predict well-being at initial levels, they no longer do so after a certain level of material needs has been met. Other non-economic factors such as social relationships, they become more important predictors of well-being. And this has been found both across nations and within nations. And some of my recent research also showed that non-economic factors such as emotions and perceptions, they could predict and influence various dimensions of well-being independent of the economic factors. 
Would you then say it is important for countries to have good research to assess and track the subjective well-being of its people? Good scientific research will provide a more accurate reading of the pulse of the people. And also it will help identify the factors that could predict well-being and the consequences of different levels of well-being for the various segments of the population. And this is important because the findings could provide useful inputs when we formulate or implement public policies or organisational interventions. So, research on subjective well-being can actually help to develop effective public policies or organisational practices? There are many organisations that do measure employee perceptions and subjective well-being and take the findings seriously. They will conduct regular employee surveys and then use the feedback to improve staff engagement and staff morale. And the best organisations are often those who can see how employee well-being can actually enhance organisational performance. Like employees, citizens rightly expect their political leaders to go beyond economic concerns to take into account their individual well-being. Let's take Singapore for example. My own observation is that politicians and civil servants are recognising the need to go beyond economic incentives when formulating and implementing policies. But to make well-informed decisions, our leaders need to be guided by more rigorous research. Research that will better identify the factors that predict Singaporeans' well-being and the kinds of outcomes that follow. It seems like we need a proper index of national well-being in Singapore. That's an issue that requires elaboration. We should understand that the research goal, whether it is in Singapore or in other countries, is not always to arrive at a single index of national well-being. Instead, it is a process to develop rigorous measurements of well-being. These measurements can be specific indices for various domains such as family, school or work life. Or they can be macro indices that are useful when we want to examine multidimensional issues such as commitment to the country. So rather than think of the debate as a search for the ultimate index of well-being or happiness, we should start with properly measuring various aspects of well-being understand their antecedents and consequences and track them in order to get useful inputs for policies and interventions. So, do we need to conduct quite comprehensive research on well-being in Singapore? Research programmes take time to evolve. But what we urgently need is a proper framework to understand the issues involved in subjective well-being and quality of life in Singapore. It is likely that there are unique issues that apply to the context of Singapore that may not apply in other cultures. We need a more holistic conception of citizen well-being that will help address important questions. For example, what are the dimensions of well-being that matter to citizens? How do they vary across different segments of the population? Which dimensions may change over time and how? And how are the different aspects of well-being related to other variables? These are important translational research questions that need to be addressed if we are going to be effective in solving problems and make real national progress for the benefit of citizens. What would you say to those who argue that focusing on subjective well-being is problematic and that it will shift attention away from the more important economic concerns facing the country? Let me put it this way. In the Singapore's National Pledge, we aspire to achieve happiness, prosperity and progress for our nation. These are also the aspirations of many nations. Happiness, prosperity and progress are all aspects of the well-being of our people. 
So focusing on subjective well-being is entirely consistent with national goals and aspirations. Yes, economic prosperity is fundamental, and I don't think anyone disagrees. But in building a nation, economic prosperity is one of several pillars. You need the economic pillar, and it must not be trivialized. But I don't think you can support a house for very long with only one pillar, whether it is economic or non-economic. Therefore, it is counterproductive to frame the issues as an adversarial contest between economic and non-economic variables. You need all the key pillars, and to remember that the purpose of the pillar is to support the house for people to call it home. For the economic pillar to serve its intended function, we need policies that ensure economic growth is effectively translated into outcomes that benefit citizens and contribute to their well-being. Economic growth should therefore be a means to achieve ends that are citizen-centric. So in the case of Singapore, to build a house for Singaporeans to call it home, you need to enhance citizen well-being, which clearly involves both economic and non-economic variables. In short, a good leader knows the importance of subjective well-being, and that requires much more than focusing on economic factors. And given that economic conditions are often beyond the leader's control, an overemphasis on economic concerns is not the best bet for developing an effective compact between employees and senior management, and between citizens and government. Here's my final question. Would you say that the results of the Singapore general election 2011 are, in a way, a measure of Singaporeans' subjective well-being or their satisfaction with the quality of life in the country? Well, any election result is an aggregate outcome of the choices of voters at the ballot box with regard to the candidates or political parties who are contesting. Various cognitive and emotional factors enter into the decision-making process in casting their vote. And of course, the voter's experience of his or her quality of life could have a significant influence, especially if the voter is drawing a direct relationship between his or her quality of life and the choice in the vote. But two voters with similar levels of subjective well-being could vote differently, and voters making the same choice could have very different levels of subjective well-being. So the election results per se, whether it is in Singapore or elsewhere, is not a good measure of citizens' subjective well-being. But citizens' subjective well-being is one of several important factors that could influence voting behaviour, and for that matter, influence many other important behaviours, judgments and decisions in life. So subjective well-being does matter. It matters a lot, and it matters to everyone. Thank you very much, Professor Chan, for your insightful comments. You are listening to a podcast by the Singapore Management University.